0: Welcome to DATCast, the official podcast of the Design Automation Conference. We're here because design automation is something that happens year-round, not just for a week in the summer. Hosting the podcast, this is Eric Seligman from Cadence Design Systems, along with Rich Edelman from Siemens EDA. Once again, we're starting with the DAC Moment segment, where Dave Rich is going to tell us about one of his favorite moments from one of the past DAC conferences.
1: I guess you already know my name, Dave Rich. I work in the uh, Ecosystems Department of uh, Siemens EDA, working on a lot of different standards. Of course, the main one I work on is System Verilog, but I'm uh, getting involved with a lot of other standard developments that are coming up, looking at RISC-V, CDC constraints, and uh, all of those things that uh, make our tools interoperable with other vendors
0: you had talked about a, a moment from your past when there was apparently an interesting art project that uh, was developed for your DAC booth.
1: This was my second DAC as an as an exhibitor. The previous year we'd hired an actor to play Albert Einstein. He had a little speech and uh, basically open up the gateways of your mind was the tag. Right after the DAC, we had sort of party afterwards and we came up with this idea about a kinetic sculpture. This guy, uh, George Rowe had been really popular doing a lot of art sculptures, actually. And there were a bunch of them in the Boston Logan Airport. And so we thought, well, maybe we can show, you know, Verilog can be used to model sculpture. So that's how the idea came up. And I, I don't know uh, how much money it cost to get this artist to do this, but uh, it was quite Interesting, you know, he didn't know anything about digital design and I sort of explained to him a couple of things that we model in in hardware that might relate to uh, his sculpture. And a lot of that had to do with the cues that he had set up where balls would collect, get like a FIFO, or I guess, where uh, balls would come up and once they got full, that would be enough to weight them down and then they would drop all at once. And then there was the random modeling of balls would fall on a little rocker and would randomly go in one direction or the other. So it gave him ideas of how we have connections in hardware that the flow of electrons. So his balls basically became sort of the, the flow of data. Came up. This, the sculpture was pretty big. By the time it was done, it was encased in a housing that was like six by six by six feet. I got a chance to visit him in his uh, workshop and see a lot of other sculptures being built. And they delivered it to DAC in um, Las Vegas. This was 1989, I think. And we gave out uh, a lot of the balls of the sculpture. We had all, all of our partners, we had in, engraved balls with their logos on the balls. And then we sort of, we got them encased in glass, in a glass cube to give out as a gift. Had a lot of legs to it. Eventually, it wound up in the lobby. It was at Chelmsford, Massachusetts at the time, and it was on for a while. And they turned they turned it off and only turned it on for like holiday parties or something. And they would turn it on. I think they mo- just recently moved out of that Chelmsford office. They were there for at least 20 years. I don't know where it is. I don't know where it is now.
0: <laughs> uh, so, so now, it was was this gigantic 6x6x6 uh, six by six by six, uh, art, art uh, object modeled completely in Verilog? Uh, yeah, so
1: we had a model for it, and we printed it on the glass case sort of fr- from the side. You can look at the model, and we had a, a demonstration uh, monitor on the side showing the simulation running or the results of the simulation that showed, you know, predicted where the balls would be and how, how the balls would get queued up, either coming up, the there was a little elevator shaft. There were other places where balls would rest, and so we, we modeled that, and I don't know, it was... We didn't, like, try to model the physical characteristics of the speed of the balls or anything like that, just just mainly the positioning. But it was just, it was cute, and it, it served its purpose, and it, it was a lot of fun.
2: Hi, everyone. It's Debbie Dac. We're excited to be gearing up for the 60th DAC, a milestone year you don't want to miss. Advanced registration and the program is now live on DAC.com, And who doesn't love DAC? Complimentary I Love DAC passes are now available, which give you access to all keynotes, Visionary, Sky Talks, and Tech Talks, plus networking receptions and both floors of the exhibit hall. Don't wait and register today at DAC.com.
0: Today's interview is with legendary former mentor CEO Wally Ryan. While most of us in the EDA world know him from his time at Mentor, it's amazing what other things he's done in his career. As you'll hear in the interview, he played a critical role in the rise of DSPs when he was working at Texas Instruments for many years. In addition, he was one of the forces behind the speak and spell children's toy you might remember if you grew up in the 70s, and he did work that was considered foundational by a later physics Nobel Prize winner. Let's listen to what Wally has to say. Thanks again for agreeing to uh, speak to us. I I looked over your uh, sort of online resumes and stuff, and I was kind of amazed at all the stuff you've done in your career other than EDA. I know most people who started in your generation didn't even know what EDA was when they entered college. So maybe you could start by just telling us what uh, crazy path led you into the EDA field to eventually become CEO of Mentor.
3: Uh, In graduate school, I got involved in semiconductor electronics, Uh, one of the people on, of the forum, my thesis committee in graduate school was Craig Barrett, who later became CEO at Intel. And so this was Craig's first exposure to electronics, and mine as well. And we did uh, we worked on three five semiconductor compounds, gallium arsenide, uh, gallium nitride, and uh, so that put me into the electronics industry. And then uh, 21 years at Texas Instrument Instruments. Uh, took me to all aspects of semiconductor uh, business from manufacturing, design, development. uh, And so ultimately, uh, the part that interested me the most was in the area of uh, design and the uh, product development. And so uh, from a series of circumstances, I took the job as uh, CEO of Mentor Graphics, which uh, was one of the three largest electronic design automation companies and then did that for another 23 years.
0: Now, you briefly mentioned um, your uh, work in material science that you did in grad school. and I hadn't realized I was with Craig Barrett. That's really cool. Um, but um, one other really amazing thing about it is it was sort of cited as foundational work by the 2014 uh, Nobel Prize winners in physics. Um, can you say a bit more about uh, what your influence was there and, and why it was so important?
3: Uh, yeah, the uh, as I mentioned, uh, uh, I was involved in a, a major uh, contract uh, working on three-five uh, materials. Uh, I had specialized in gallium arsenide, but the person I was shared an office with, uh, Herb Maresca, was doing gallium nitride, and so we spent. Uh, long periods of discussion together, and he was trying to develop a blue light emitter and uh, working his way through the periodic table, and so uh, I spent a lot of time with him, and we, uh, one afternoon discussion, I discovered uh, that he had never tried out magnesium as a dopant, and uh, he went and did it. It emitted blue light, and that became the basis for what is now all of the uh, solid-state lighting today, uh, uh, magnesium-doped gallium nitride.
0: So, so before we get into the EDA topics, I want to talk also about what's the most important part of your career, um, which is because it was a major part of my childhood, was uh, I read that you were also heavily involved in the Speak and Spell toy, which, uh, you know, in some senses was the first handheld gaming console back in the 70s. Can you talk a little about that? Yeah, I was. So uh, I was a... Uh... Uh,
3: the head of actually in charge of engineering for the Consumer Products Division of TI, And a uh, a guy named Paul Breedlove was searching for something to differentiate us as the Japanese manufacturers were overwhelming us in uh, four-function calculators. We were doing okay on scientific calculators, but we needed some other differentiation. And Paul came up with the idea of uh, building a speech product based on some technology that was developed in the research labs at TI for very uh, low bit rate. Uh, understandable speech. We did a lot of illogical things. We, uh, The world was trying to do speech processing using the highest performance semiconductors in channel MOS, and because we were uh, a low-cost consumer-oriented business, we only used p channel MOS. Then Morris Chang, who ran semiconductor at the time, had given us a special deal of $2 a wafer for uh, uh, two-inch wafers of uh, uh, P-channel MOS, and so uh, we developed a pipeline multiplier and uh, used it for speech. Uh, it was uh, very speculative, uh, but uh, in fact, uh, as soon as we introduced it, it became a hit. So uh, I then later uh, uh, went on to uh, start the digital signal processing business uh, at TI as part of the semiconductor business.
4: So while I'm a mentor employee, now Siemens employee and big fan. Um, and uh, I guess, you know, I'm just amazed, like uh, Eric was saying, all the things you've done. I mean, do you ever plan on retiring?
3: <laughs> no, no, I don't. <laughs> uh, I can't imagine that. Uh, of course, I uh, all the time I worked, I worked because I really enjoyed it. And so giving it up uh, would be a big sacrifice. So uh, I just merged one thing into another and uh, Siemens actually it was nice enough to keep me on as CEO emeritus. Uh, Great job if you've never had it uh, for (laughs) a couple of years uh, after the company was acquired. Uh, But I very quickly got involved in other things and I was working on a DARPA contract when I learned about fully homomorphic encryption. And that led to my association with an old friend, Gordy Campbell, which uh, uh, put me on target uh, for Kornami, uh, a company that we've named for a tsunami of cores that will uh, solve the problem of real-time, fully homomorphic encryption, sort of the next generation of uh, cybersecurity.
4: Well, I have to admit to have never hearing that before until I was doing some background for you. And then, uh, so, okay, I got the encryption part. And then all of a sudden, I read more details. Oh, it's AIML. Sort of. (laughs) And, and, you know, that's every, every paper I read these days, every conference we go to, it's always AIML. So um, are you going to apply this technology to other things?
3: Uh, The innovation is actually a software innovation. It's in the compiler and the ability to take applications and essentially vectorize them into totally independent streams of control combined with data. And actually, the original target of the company, uh, once they had proven out the software, the most obvious thing to do was machine learning. And they were headed in that direction. And actually, it was uh, because Gordy called me trying to get a discount on Metter Software that (laughs) uh, he showed me what they were doing. And I I said, well, that's great, but I've heard the same speech from 30 other companies, so good luck and uh, his cto said you know there is one thing we could do that nobody else can do Uh, you've never heard of it but it's called fully homomorphic encryption and it's really important. And I said, well, strangely, I just did a contract with DARPA for the last few months uh, looking at it. You're right that nobody else is doing it, but I'm quite sure you can't do it either. And uh, that's when they said, oh, yes, we can. And after several months of going over their emulation and simulation data, I concluded, my gosh, they actually can do it. And so it was pretty exciting. So I, my punishment was to become CEO.
0: Can you take a step back, though, and just say for our listeners, what is fully homomorphic encryption?
3: So it's the next generation of encryption that uh, is expected quantum-resistant, probably quantum-proof. That is, no one's figured a way that quantum computers will be able to break it, uh, whereas they have figured out that most of the existing Internet security will be breakable. But the important thing is that it's a form of encryption uh, and computation developed at Stanford University in 2010 uh, by a guy named Craig Gentry that allows you to perform all the computation on the data while it remains encrypted. So you never give your key to anyone. The cloud or computer center never decrypts your data. It always stays encrypted with this ultra secure form of encryption. And therefore you're never exposed. If the data center is hacked, your your data is safe. And so it's become what uh, the department of defense calls uh, the zero trust strategy foundation that is trust no one don't even trust the data center don't trust the chips don't trust the operating system you want to be sure that no matter what happens your data is protected and the only way we know to do that in the, at least in the foreseeable future, is with fully homomorphic encryption, but it is very computationally intensive, as you might imagine. Uh, probably have to have computers that run close to a million times as fast as a typical Intel uh, or Nvidia server. So it's uh, it's a challenge, but that's exactly what Kornami brought. They had developed a form of parallelism that could do that kind of acceleration, and so it's just a case of doing a chip to implement the software.
4: So, so while do you see that – so, will you apply this to other things, or will you really just go after this fully homomorphic market?
3: Uh, no it can be applied to many things the focus on fully homomorphic encryption gives us a single focus where there's no real competition and where there's an almost unlimited market uh replacing all the servers in the world that where people value security uh right. but it's uh equally applicable to doing zero knowledge proofs which are quite important for uh security and blockchain uh it's uh, uh offers orders of magnitude improvement there as well it could uh, even overcome the problem of the cost effectiveness of uh, large language models chat gpt for example you could that uh, you would be very cost effective because running at uh, uh, millions of times the performance, the cost per minute of, uh, of queries uh, would go down dramatically. So, a whole range of uh, applications, but the one we focus on initially is fully homomorphic encryption.
4: So, so, all this technology that you're discovering and you're not, you know, no indication of retiring and everything, how do we get the kids coming out of school to get so excited about EDA and, and maybe a, a semiconductors in, instead of, you know, Facebook and Uh, Google and other things. I mean, nothing wrong with them either. But, you know, how do we get them excited about uh, the EDA world?
3: Yeah, that's, uh, I I think, uh, a a real challenge. Uh, There uh, was a period where it was such an obvious way to make your fortune, uh, where things were happening so fast that it just attracted uh, large groups of people. And I'd say, uh, unlike IC design, where actual building of semiconductors has become so expensive that uh, you don't have facilities in universities anymore, Uh, anybody can do uh, electronic design automation uh, if you have access to a computer. So it's not so limited. The issue is, uh, what are the exciting new challenges uh, Uh, and what would attract uh, graduate students or even undergraduate students to get interested. And uh, there is certainly, uh, there have been uh, funds set aside for exactly that purpose in the uh, the CHIPS Act uh, to uh, stimulate the growth of an infrastructure. Uh, some of that uh, directed to the fact that since so much semiconductor manufacturing is offshore, uh, EDA is really the part that remains a U.S. dominated business, but uh, if you bring the whole industry more and more on shore, you'll attract more interest among college graduates. And and I, I think the thing that uh, stimulates interest is where are the interesting jobs? And uh, what's, what's happening now is we're seeing a resurgence in demand for people trained in semiconductor electronics and the associated design capabilities. And that more than anything else will probably drive an increase in the number of research programs, the number of students that work on the technology, uh, the visibility and interest, and uh, some things that attract people to the industry. And we'll probably see more of the uh, small startups and independent innovation than we've seen in the last few years, which has has been reduced uh, a great deal in the last decade. But uh, every time there's a new wave of innovation, then these kinds of things spring back up.
0: So actually I want to step back and ask a follow-up to um, what you were discussing earlier about Kornami um, being heavily involved in machine learning. Um, Because one of the other surprises I found when researching your background online was that actually back in the mid eighties, there was like a cover article on you in one of the magazines about how you were doing machine learning, you know, that of course was many years before uh, today's boom. Um, So what were you doing back then? And, you know, did it, do anything useful at that point and was that yeah. the foundation of what's happening now
3: <laughs> amazing yeah that uh, cover of uh, high technology magazine uh, that said uh, the big boys get into the act on artificial intelligence uh it uh, was a picture of george Halmeyer, who was previously uh, head of DARPA, he was at Texas Instruments, and I uh, and I was running the data systems group at that time, uh, which was the computer business of TI, and we were searching for ways to differentiate ourselves, and uh, we chose artificial intelligence, although <laughs> it seems strange, 1986, uh, what happened. Uh, I think uh, it was uh, uh, a technology that existed, but the computers of the day, really weren't powerful enough to do many of the things that are interesting today in ai there weren't any killer apps but we did have a whole business uh, developing expert systems which is the equivalent of machine learning today Uh, we uh, actually even developed uh, hardware developed uh, workstations for uh, building applications in lisp Uh, we we did the whole enchilada uh, but uh, as a business it really just didn't take off. Uh, So I got the early experience, and then uh, what, uh, 30 years later, uh, it actually became relevant.
0: (laughs) Yeah, that's funny. I was actually in grad school in computer science in, you know, 91 to 94. And I know back then my friends and I, you know, we we had some professors who did machine learning and uh, we were all, you know, going to their classes and all very skeptical that it was actually practical based on, you know, what had been demonstrated at that point.
3: Yeah, the problem was you couldn't do anything that made money. You could do interesting (laughs) demos, but uh, there were no businesses popping up. Uh, Now we see a lot of ways you can apply it, and uh, that's when it takes off. And similar to what you talked about before, uh, to the extent that new innovations in EDA and some semiconductor technology create new businesses, the grad students will follow
4: well yes, i'm I'm hoping for those days to return, because um, that that was fun back in the days. But um, so the small kind of the small startups and then the medium startups eating them, and then the big guys eating the medium ones, you know, it's a whole ecosystem of consumption. Now, uh, getting over to back over to mentor, I wonder if you wanted to say I was around for the cadence uh, days and the Carl icon stuff, and all those, oh. well, I'll just call them those dark times. And then the mm-hmm. <laughs> Siemens came along. Do you want to say anything about those days or how that uh how that whole thing unrolled at Mentor?
3: Oh, it was a great experience for me overall.
4: Uh,
3: uh-huh. uh it, it was actually uh, with the Siemens period 25 years. So a long period of evolving with the industry. Uh I think uh, Mentor was particularly an interesting place to be because we were uh, we were the number three. We had come from number one uh, oh, uh, before I got there, and so we were on uh, sort of a recovery path, but we had to uh, run faster. We had to find areas where there were discontinuities that uh, were going to occur because just going frontally was not viable in EDA, and we discovered some of those, uh, uh, particularly physical verification and design for test and, and and we put money into printed circuit board design when no one else did, and so we 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 did sort of a collection of just doing what other people didn't do, Uh, but uh, our our stock price uh, lagged behind, and so we were a target. And uh, Mm -hmm. uh, when Cadence tried to acquire Mentor uh, and then uh, uh, failed, they uh, withdrew their uh, attempted takeover when their own finances melted down. I uh, Carl Icahn viewed that as an obvious sign that we were a target and gee it must be that uh, uh Wally didn't want to lose his job and so uh, you know we could make this deal and so Carl came back in as he always does he did the same thing with Yahoo and uh sometimes successfully sometimes not but uh, he did manage to get two seats on the board. And so I got a lot of experience in how you deal with proxy contests, uh, how you deal with uh, uh, board members who have a purpose other than just the, uh, uh, the well-being of the company who represent a, a different constituency. Uh, and actually, he wasn't the only one. I got to work with uh, actually three of the leading, I guess, uh, Advocates are uh, uh, unfriendly uh, kinds of shareholder owners. Uh, I dealt with Jeff Smith at Starbird uh, uh, when they came after Triquin and I was on the board. And I dealt with Jesse Cohen, actually, at the time Siemens was uh, uh, there. He was representing Elliott Associates. So uh, I had all of them there. And it's it's, uh, a skill that... It bears training, and there is training in the industry, but uh, you've got a number of problems when someone's taking over your company, then employees like you, Rich, start wondering, would it be better to go switch jobs now instead of being there uh, when all the jobs are taken and they're uh, laying off the dregs? Uh, So you're trying to hang on to your employees, but at the same time, dealing with shareholders who uh, are seeing the price being bid up on your stock and uh, uh, so you're, you're trying to justify the case of remaining independent, assuming that that's the best thing for the company. And uh, so it's uh, uh, a fair amount of pressure during those periods. But uh, on the other hand, I think you learn the most when you uh, are under trying times. And uh, mm-hmm. I just have to hand it to the mentor employees. We hardly lost any uh, uh, unique uh, people during that period the company continued to perform well carl made a great deal of money out of this uh, and moved on uh, after he had uh, achieved his uh, objectives and uh, the company continued to thrive and grow and uh, uh, gain market share and uh, uh, did very well after the carl icon days uh, right yep. up uh, until the, uh, the next wave and uh, uh even then, and even today, I'm told that Metter is the star of the Siemens acquisition portfolio. They've done extremely well since then, which I'm very glad uh, I think that's good when everybody wins
0: yeah but by the way, can you say a little bit more about the Siemens acquisition? I know a lot of us were caught by surprise by that. you know it wasn't something we expected to happen, like a company like that acquiring an e d a company. And does it signal that uh, other EDA companies are going to be acquired by a big conglomerates soon?
3: I don't know. You know, it's uh, there certainly has been a view uh, for many years that says that uh, there is so much interaction in different types of uh, design that uh, many of the skills are shared. That uh, I was never much of a supporter of the idea of uh, combining mechanical and uh, electrical design. I felt the disciplines were so different that uh, you couldn't mix them easily. Uh, but uh, there were things, uh, we had products like uh, our automotive wiring business where you had to go back and forth from the mechanical design to the electrical design to be sure that the wire bundle fits through the hole in the door frame. So there were capabilities like that. I think, though, the thing that really attracted Siemens to mentor was the fact that we had such a large share of our business in system design, not just printed circuit board, but uh, uh the uh, all sorts of fluid dynamics and uh, thermal analysis and uh, a variety of other products and all those things uh, fit in directly the ic design was really different and as a result They've maintained it uh, pretty much independent of the rest of their business. So, I guess I'd say it, it's probably not a wave of total industry uh, motion, but there have been uh, activities by EDA companies to work closely with Siemens competitors, for example, uh, Dassault, and they're coupling uh, with other EDA companies, and same thing. Uh, Uh, other mechanical CAD people have built relationships. So I think passing data back and forth, having uh, good interfaces is important. Whether you need to own the companies to do it is yet to be shown, but uh, Siemens was uh, a very good company to take over. Uh, There were lots of people who could have uh, purchased Mentor where they would have had massive layoffs and uh, simply harvested the company for some of its uh, jewel products, and Siemens uh, had none of that. Siemens uh, preserved the company, continued to invest in the company, uh, and so I think it was a a good outcome in many ways, uh, uh, unlike uh, what some acquirers could have
0: been. Another uh random question for you on my list here. You know, with with all the successful stuff you've done in your career, I was searching hard through your record to find something you've done that wasn't successful, and I found one example. Um, when you were at TI, you were involved with something called the TMS9900 microprocessor, which kind of uh was seen as a flop. Um, maybe you could talk about that and what lessons it taught you that led to your later success at Mentor. Yeah, I actually wrote an article on this.
3: Uh, I was. Uh, When I was running the consumer products uh, engineering, uh, uh, I was in Lubbock, Texas, and I I was anxious to move somewhere else, and uh, TI had developed the 9900 its 16-bit microprocessor, and it was not doing well at all. And Intel had just introduced the 8086, and Motorola had announced the 68000, and so no one at TI was very interested in running the microprocessor group. Because it was by then clear the 9900 wasn't going to make it, and uh, now the competition was evident. Uh, So I Uh, used that opportunity to become head of microprocessors at a very young age, mostly because no one else wanted to. And uh, that uh, allowed me to move to Houston, but I took on the challenge of what to do about the 9900. Uh, Ultimately, uh, we did do some things that added to the life of it and generated some revenue, but the ultimate solution was to jump a generation ahead. And what we did was say, gee, if host microprocessors are the big thing today, maybe special purpose microprocessors will be in the future. And we designed four products, the 320, 340, 360, and 380. Most people don't know about the others since the 320, the single chip digital signal processor, was so successful that it overshadowed the others. But the idea was a communications processor before digital signal processing was well known. So we had to train our customer base in what is digital signal processing. But overall, uh, I'm told it became uh, about half of TI's total revenue, if you include the derivatives that were done. It put TI number one position in baseband cellular and closed-loop servo control for disk drives and all sorts of uh, speech processing. So it, was, it had a big impact on the company. Uh, while I, I think the, the seeds of success are always sown through major failures, The reason we were allowed to go off and do this is no one thought that the microprocessor group was going to be successful. And so, they just sort of said, well, do something. We can't totally be out of the business. We're a leading semiconductor company, but there really wasn't a lot of supervision. And so, uh, the innovative people rose to the top, and uh, that's how – Decided to define what is a DSP and then do it. It was mostly being able to do a single-cycle multiply-accumulate was the target, and that we figured out from just analyzing digital signal processing algorithms, and uh, it became uh, pretty exciting. Very much like what I see today at Kornami, uh, developing a chip where it. Offers unique kinds of performance capabilities, so that your customers will invent new applications, and where you open up uh, a whole new horizon of possibilities that can grow your business and the industry. And those are the kinds of exciting businesses that make the industry fun. I still talk to people today who say, "Hey, the period working on the 320 DSP was the greatest period of my life. It was so much fun. It was so exciting." I, I think that's that's what you look for in the industry. That's what makes
4: it great. So, so is is machine learning, is that the, is that the new thing that the, the graduates, and that's what they're going to apply to EDA? Is that how the technology, that same excitement, or are we going to have special purpose processors like you have? Where's the new thing that gets them that excited where they look back 30 years later and say, hmm, that was a lot of fun?
3: ai is a new technology like digital signal processing that will be applied to lots and lots of things so at the application end it's an exciting area uh yeah how can i take what we've learned in digital signal in in artificial intelligence and create better products so at the product level uh it's that way but i think for the kinds of discontinuities we found when we introduced the original digital signal processor it takes Uh, some kind of component flagship that becomes the vehicle by which people implement things. In AI, it's sort of the technology itself rather than just machine learning. Mm -hmm. Uh, Machine learning's a tool, but it's already a business that the actual compute tends to be dominated by a single company, NVIDIA, where I think the exciting new applications are is in applying it to other areas, uh, either embedded in chip designs, uh, the ability to uh, make products more intelligent, or in uh, the ability to design totally different architectures. The, The thing Kornami did was to make parallel computing viable for a whole variety of applications. And up to this point, we get a lot of cores on a chip, but it's very hard to use them. And so Kornami was able to develop a software environment where just you could very easily program applications that were easily parallelized. And that meant you could take things that had been done for a long time that just didn't scale and now introduce orders of magnitude in new performance. And so that's the kind of discontinuity that creates new industries, creates new applications, and parallel computing, artificial intelligence, digital signal processing, these are big discontinuities. Then the places where the excitement grows is in how you apply them, how you create new products, how you make existing
0: products better. So so another question on your Kornami work. Um, I noticed it seems like kind of a different type of company, right, than the major ones you've been running in the past, right? If you look at uh, Mentor of course being very big EDA and then, you know, TI being a very big uh, semiconductor company. Has your perspective changed any over the last few years um with your shift to like running a fabulous startup instead of those previous sort of much bigger environments? Yeah, it's a it's a great experience
3: one I hadn't had. And it's sort of the other dimension. I'm, I'm very glad now to have covered uh, what a lot of my associates did I hadn't experienced. And that's that's running a company from a very, very struggling small operation to something bigger. A great deal of my time for the first two years was spent raising money. It wasn't easy, uh, It's especially if you're still developing the end product. Uh, but we were able to find some innovative people, one in particular at SoftBank, and they ultimately led the round that funded the major portion of our development. Uh, But uh, I think uh, those who have only worked for big companies have never experienced a lot of the both excitement and challenge of working for a startup. You don't always know whether you can make your payroll the next week. You don't you, know, you figure out how to avoid spending money doing all sorts of things and and using third parties in many different innovative ways. And so it's a a little different. Uh, no, it's a lot different, and so, but it's great because what you create uh, can be really revolutionary, and it it really is your creation. You're not heavily dependent upon getting unanimity of uh, all sorts of different divisions of a company. You you basically set the the charter. You you know where you want to go, and then the people who join. Uh, Join more out of uh, excitement about the application than anything else. You, you're not paying, bribing them with bigger salaries. You're not uh, you know, offering all sorts of perks. You're you're basically uh, in motivating them with the excitement of changing the world. And uh, that's uh, I see a lot of startups that have evolved and succeeded with just that. And that's been what has made Cornami successful so far.
0: So one more question I had my list of uh, jotted down here. Um, I noticed that you wrote a book on the uh, semiconductor industry in 2019. Um, can you say some more about that book and why everyone here should read it? I did. Uh, in fact, I wrote two books, uh, uh, one on uh, semiconductor
3: analytics or uh, business uh, analysis of business trends in semiconductors. And I wrote the one you're referring to, the first one, uh, about The History of the Semiconductor Industry, and I I did it only because Daniel Nenny just insisted that I do it because he would talk to me, and he was from the West Coast, and he said, you know, there's a whole history of the semiconductor industry that no one knows about because you people in Dallas were – sort of isolated from the rest of the world and all these things you knew were going on people don't know this so said you you have to write a book and i did it uh, just a a column at a time for semi wiki and then eventually, uh, uh, Daniel convinced me to put it together into a book, which he helped me edit. Uh, so uh, it, it covered a lot of these things you're talking about because there were in- interesting uh, innovations going on uh, outside the Bay Area. And that's a lot of what I captured there. The second book uh, was based on mostly on uh, all the period I had at Mentor, and to some extent TI, uh, giving speeches on interesting aspects of uh, the business. And over time, I had acquired a lot of insight, uh, somewhat with the help of a very capable uh, person I worked with, Merlin Brunken, that the semiconductor industry, because it's such a free market business, uh, obeys certain economic laws that make it very predictable. And while most of the world depends upon Moore's law, uh, it turns out there's a whole other set of laws and including uh, things related to the learning curve that will go on long after Moore's law is gone. And so I uh, took a collection of many of those uh, presentations and put it together into a book so that that you can see many things about how you do competitive analysis, predicting markets, market trends, uh, evolution of new products, how you, how you know in advance that there's going to be a big innovation somewhere, things like that. Uh, a lot of graphical data in the book. They're both available on Amazon, uh, uh, not too expensive. So. Uh, yeah, I hope if uh, any of your listeners uh, want to uh, do an analysis of the economics of the semiconductor industry, they'll take a look there. Or if they'd rather just know about some of the history that you don't read very
0: much about, they can do the same with the other book. I hope you enjoyed that interview with Wally as much as we did. Be sure to go to DAC.com and register, and we'll hope to see you at the conference.
2: Hi, everyone. It's Debbie Dack. We're excited to be gearing up for the 60th DAC. This is a milestone year you don't want to miss. DAC will be held July 9th through 13th at Moscone West in San Francisco. I do hope you have enjoyed listening to Wally Rines. Wally will be the Wednesday keynote at this year's DAC. Advance registration and the program is now live. Check out all that DAC has to offer in this 60th year at DAC.com and register today for advanced registration.